Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. In today's webinar, we discuss the future of universal service after the Infrastructure Act. My name is Jenny Mahoney, and I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them using the Q&A feature located at the bottom of the screen so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Larry Spywack, President of the Phoenix Center for Advanced Legal and Economic Public Policy Studies. With that, thank you for being with us today. Larry, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Jenny, and welcome everybody to our telephone today entitled The Future of Universal Service After the Infrastructure Act. Um, by way of a quick background, for those of you who haven't been following the uh, universal uh, service issue, whether it's an ongoing, uh, last November, President Biden signed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act into law and it commits about $65 billion towards broadband expansion. Um, <clears throat> wisely, as part of that law, uh, Section 60104C, uh, directs the FCC to submit to Congress a report uh, within 20, 270 days, basically looking at, as we're spending all this money, how does that affect um, existing universal service programs? And that's what we're really gonna get into today to talk about how to sort of think about it. The Congress invited the commission to, um, quote, make recommendations on further actions the commission and Congress should take to improve the availability of the commission, the ability of the commission to achieve the national universal service goals for broadband. And so last December, the FCC issued a notice of inquiry or NOI to begin this process. Uh, so we are uh, very lucky and pleased today to be joined by a panel of industry experts with many years of experience in this business. Uh, so I will just start to go around the horn. We have Patrick Halley, who is the Senior Vice President of Policy Advocacy over at U and the General Counsel of U.S. Telecom. Uh, Alexander Menard, who's the Vice President of uh, State and Legislative Counsel over at NCTA, the Cable Association. We have Angie Cronenberg, who's the Chief Advocate and General Counsel of Encompass for the CLEC perspective. And as we don't have enough lawyers on this call, we are also very lucky to have uh, Dr. George Ford, who's the Chief Economist of the Phoenix Center to tell us why we're all wrong as lawyers. And that'll be really good. So again, my name is Larry Spywack. I'm the President of the Phoenix Center. So let's, let me first do a quick little analytical setup of the issues and the problems that we're gonna be talking about today. So for those of us who've been doing this for a long time, uh, universal service, to put it politely, is sort of the third rail of telecom policy. It is a tremendous amount of money. It is highly political, um, but yet it is in law. It has been in law since uh, the 96 Act, um, but it is a hard problem if you, if you approach this seriously. Um, you have demand side considerations, and George will get in a little bit of that, you know, mostly relevance, do I want broadband or not? Um, and of course we have supply side considerations where the goal is we live in a very diverse uh, and big country and we have a lot of high cost areas and it costs a lot of money to serve areas and many of those areas are uneconomic to serve. And uh, 
not to point, uh, put too, fine, too fine a point on the pencil, but we have been throwing a huge amount of money at this problem for years. Uh, you know, 96 Act, it's been over 25 years. And now that has been ramped up by the Infrastructure Act with $65 billion. So it's, it's a bit of an oversimplification. We'll get into this in a moment. But the Infrastructure Act, generally, there's some crossovers. I'll get to that in a moment. You know, usually is designed to go to deployment, right? We want to go to deployment while, and, and you've got the BEAD program, which is Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. While traditional USF's uh, universal service programs tend to go to adoption, lifeline being the most obvious. Now, there are some crossovers. We need to sort of think about that a little bit, um, some exceptions. Uh, the Universal Service Fund has the high cost fund, which is designed to provide subsidies to high cost service areas so people can get that. And the Infrastructure Act has the Affordable Connectivity Program, or ACP, uh, which subsidizes demand side. So there's just a ton of money and a ton of programs going out there. So cutting to the chase, um, with one who is unfamiliar with the industry, one would think, and you, to read the press releases, I think out of a, a lot of places, that with now that we're spending this huge amount of money, we have finally solved the digital divide, we finally solved the homework gap, um, for that kind of money, right? Where this is a once in a generational thing. Um, for those of us who are familiar with the economics of the industry, and I would include probably the FCC itself, if you read the NOI, we're probably going to end up with a never ending stream of subsidies. So again, Congress asked the FCC to issue this report and the issue of the NOI, and I think they did a pretty good job to try and make sense of that problem. Um, so what we are going to do today is we're basically going to follow the outline of the FCC's NOI and try to walk along their framework to uh, see what we can we can we can figure out here and discuss various aspects. So let's start with the first topic, and I think it's a good topic to, to start the discussion with, is that what is the policy goal here? that we're trying to solve. Um, you know, there's always these great, you know, phrases, you know, universal service is great, but the act does provide some guidance um, along with the telecom act. So the infrastructure act defines the commission's universal, the, the act defines the commission's universal service goals basically is what's mandated in uh, section 706 of the telecommunications act, which for those of us who've been doing this a long time, know that line almost by heart, encourage the deployment on a reasonable and timely basis of advanced telecommunications capability to all Americans. Great, okay. Um, and that, that's it. Now the NOI, the FCC goes one step further. Uh, they say that for purposes of the report that they're going to be drafting, they propose to consider, and I quote, um, the commission's broadband service goals as universal broadband affordability, adoption, available availability, and equitable access to broadband throughout the United States. So I'd like to start the panel by asking a couple of questions to everybody. So um, let me start with you, Alexander, because you're, you're first on my screen here. So what exactly does that phrase mean? Um, you know, when we're talking about equity, when we're talking about availability, I mean, how do you 
put that into practice. Um, you know, is this interpretation of Section 706 correct? Does it go too far? Um, does it is, does it sort of open the door to broader powers? I mean, what, what do you think about that? And I think, well, first of all, thanks to the Federal Society for, for having me on. Um, hopefully this will be a good panel. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that's a correct interpretation of the 706 report. I noticed that the FCC cross-references in that same footnote to Section 254B, which I think is where historically the the commission has rooted its its universal service principles. Um, there is a, a fair overlap between um, availability. Um, I think the way they describe some of those things might be slightly different than, than how the commission has historically interpreted its universal service mission. Um, but I, I think conceptually it's, it's all mostly there. Angie, what do you think? Well, Alex is correct. The commission did note in the NOI in Section 254 authority. And you may recall that Section 254 was about providing network access as well as affordability and specifically addresses rural, low-income schools, libraries, makes reference that this isn't just about providing telecom service per se, but also information service. So they did incorporate that into the NOI. And I feel like the questions that they're asking are the right questions to be asking. The 706 um, annual report that the commission does, it previously has looked at adoption and whether or not um, communities have adopted broadband service. So I do believe that the commission has a responsibility to be looking at these questions and setting goals that are going to prepare our nation for being able to meet uh, the future needs of our nation, be able to compete internationally. So where we see this going, right, people need access to high-speed network in order to do their jobs, see the doctor, um, look for a job, do schooling. And I think COVID really brought this to light over the last couple of years, how it is important for our society to be connected in ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to be connected. And I think, Larry, you kind of mentioned maybe not everybody wants to be connected. And, and certainly I think the commission may want to look at why that is. Um, but I don't think that they're looking for a mandate, right? But rather they're looking at making sure that everybody who wants to get connected can get connected and have access to the networks that they need in order to do all the things that folks need, now need to do online, including something like this, you know, a virtual webinar. Yeah, Larry, if I could jump in. Um, Please do. Yeah, U.S. Telecom is comfortable with what the commission has articulated. I mean, they stop comment on whether or not that um, articulation of the goal that you read is the right articulation. And, and we, we think it's a, f a fair assessment of what our goal should be. I mean, there's two ways to look at it. What is the legal requirement of the, up to the commission under the act? And then more broadly speaking, as just humans, what is our objective in terms of universal service? This all started with telephone service, of course, right? G going back well into the last century, where our, our mission as a, as a country was to ensure that everyone had access to a telephone. And we pretty much succeeded there uh, with universal telephone service, fixed and mobile at this point. It was really around the middle of the 2000, the first decade of this century that we started to say, well, wait a minute, 
should we also be looking at whether or not we should expand our perspective about what universal service is, a lot of that being culminated in the National Broadband Plan in 2010. Um, and we, I think Congress and the commission and the stakeholders that advocate to the commission all basically coalesced around the idea that we need to expand our definition and our, and our thinking about what universal service is to include broadband for all the reasons that Angie just laid out. So if you look at the statute, and it talks about access to quality service at affordable rates. And it's all about access. It's about affordability. It's about making sure that community anchor institutions, specifically in the statutes, schools, libraries, and healthcare organizations have access to what we define as, in, as universal service. And the statute itself acknowledges it's an evolving level of service. Even since 2010, one of the reasons to your point about why you would think we would have closed this gap by now, telephone is a telephone. You either have it or you don't. Broadband is, well, what is it? Is it four megabits? Is it 10? Is it 25? Is it 100? Does it need to be symmetrical? We're having arguments about that right now in various contexts. But we all do acknowledge that, um, you know, universal access to broadband that's available physically to every home in this country and business for that matter, that's affordable, that's a quality service. That's really an important goal. And I think, I think all of us share that goal. We may have different opinions about what the right policy is to achieve it, which I'm sure you'll want to grill us on. Um, but that's, I think it's a fair goal. George, do you have the economist perspective on that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the commission was told in 96 to get access to everybody and they haven't done it yet. I think it might be time to quit expanding their objectives and start narrowing their objectives. Um, get access to everybody. You can't make people buy things. Some people don't want to buy things. The latest data from the NTIA survey shows once again that the number one reason by a ratio of three to one for not having internet at home is I don't want it. So we need to stop growing it unless you're kind of setting yourself up for a problem you can't solve and just target the main problem here. And that is get broadband to everybody and do it in a way that's most efficient. Okay. That doesn't mean everybody's going to have a gigabit connection. If you live out in the middle of nowhere, you may have to live with satellite. Okay. These things, these networks are expensive and it's not anybody's obligation except you to pay for your connection. So focus on adoption Focus on efficient or focus on availability, focus on efficient deployment of networks. And then once that is accomplished, you can start thinking about other things. Well, let me throw this one question out while we're still on this topic. And I've been giving this a lot of thought for a while. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, when you phrase the word affordability, um, as I like to joke, I'm not proud of my rate making background, but I have one. Um, and so the commission over the last 20 years, and this is subject of separate law reviews I've done, but, you know, we don't do official rate regulation anymore, de jure. We've surrendered to the market. But when I hear the concept of affordability, does that mean de facto rate regulation? Um, we saw that in the special access. We saw that in net neutrality. It's like, well, I'm not going to give you a tariff, but you're going to do this price. And the commission can make recommendations. I mean, how far, I don't think, Chair Rosenworcel wants to go that far because they all said we don't do rate regulation. But are we on the precipice of something where we're almost doing de facto rate regulation? I ask this only because affordability is now such a huge buzzword that's coming out. Is that a risk we need to worry about for all? 
Um, because if you're offering service, it's got to be, quote, affordable. And the word, you know, Title II talks about J&R, which falls within the zone of reasonableness, which is, you know, a defined term on the Supreme Court, but it's not affordable. So I just want to throw that out sort of the lawyers real quick. Alexander, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, was, one way to look at this is, you know, Congress recently passed all of that money to do something very similar to what the US, uh, USF has been doing for the last generation or so. And it explicitly said that NTIA does not have rate regulation authority. So clearly Congress has, in that context, said rate regulation is unnecessary for you know, but the FCC does. But the FCC does. Well, not technically yeah. right Sorry. now for broadband. And then I, I would point out to you that I think every commissioner currently sitting on the commission and the one who's a nominee have all said that they have no intention of doing great regulation. So there's that. But I think, Larry, maybe you're looking further down the road and beyond this commission. Not, not clear to me, but, but I... You know, I think that from the competitors association's perspective, one of the ways to address affordability is by ensuring that that consumers and business customers actually have choice, right? Competition does tend to bring down prices. And if it doesn't bring down prices, it usually just keeps everybody, you know, um, in check in terms of keeping those prices at, at um, a fair level. But I think that that doesn't always address some of the issues that we see. And, and this is where some folks, if we had a public interest perspective here, might say, right, there's sometimes there's a market failure. We just we have low income consumers in the United States that even when a service is competitive, they may not be able to afford it. Right. And what do we do to address that? Um, and the, as you also know, the USF program has other things to try to address affordability, like make sure that schools and libraries and rural healthcare facilities have affordable service. So there's a subsidy that goes to, to those types of entities in certain situations. Um, and there is a role, I think, there for the commission to ensure through USF and these other potential new programs right, that service is affordable. And so I think there is a role to be played for them looking at what are the prices that are being made available and what discount or what subsidy do we need to bring to the table to make sure that these entities and these consumers can actually get the service and making that making up that difference for them. And I think we'll, we'll uh, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Alex, real quick. Then I'll let Patrick. I was, I was just gonna say, you know, we're going to test George's theory about folks who don't want to subscribe at all, right? Because many, certainly many of my companies, some of the Patrick's companies have agreed to make a offering under ACP effectively free. Um, and so to the degree that folks still aren't signing up for a free program, um, maybe there are other issues. Maybe it is that they, they don't see the need for it. Maybe it is they don't have the digital literacy skills to understand why they might need it. Um, but it, it takes the affordability um, question off the table, certainly for low-income consumers. There is an aspect, and I'm sorry, Patrick, they want to but there is an aspect of the, of the infrastructure bill that does try to help address some of these other needs of digital skilling, right? Making sure that people can get access to, to the education that they need in order to know how to use it. Yeah, I feel like we're having three different conversations at once here. So you're on Zoom. <laughs> well, I mean, so Angie talked about, you know, competition being a way to make sure things are affordable. 
agreed. I think George would agree too. And economically speaking, that having competition is usually good for ensuring uh, that the market is uh, pricing services accordingly. Um, so, but that, but USF literally is a program designed to ensure that there's a service available where there really isn't an economic reason for a provider to deploy to that area absent that that government support. So historically, our the role of USF has been to say, look, this is an area where it's just too expensive to deploy a network. There's not enough customers to recoup your investment. And so you're not typically in a USF funded area funding a bunch of competitors. We certainly hope that that's the case uh, historically and going forward. Um, so this is money that's specifically being targeted areas where it's too expensive. And the whole reason is otherwise, if the company were to deploy there, just based on pure customer density, they'd have to charge a price that was four times as much as anybody could actually afford. So in some ways, the high cost element of USF, and people don't think about it this way, truly is an affordability play because it otherwise... The, the the company wouldn't deploy in the first place, A, or B, if they did, it would just be too expensive for anybody to pay for. It wouldn't make any sense. So we've been trying to tackle it historically for that. That's what USF is. That's why we have, have this program in the first place. With respect to rate regulation, um, you know, look, Alex is right. This new federal money, it's flat out says that NTIA doesn't have the authority to regulate rates as they give this money out. And I think Congress is very intentionally and the FCC historically through Lifeline and now through the Affordable Connectivity Program, which for the uninitiated is a $30 discount uh, if you're an eligible household, 75 on tribal lands, is meant to address the fact, as Angie said, there are some households where even that level of price is going to be too much. And so I think with that level of commitment, $14 billion for the ACP program, specifically targeted at low-income households, um, uh, will in fact address the affordability issue, quote-unquote, for those households. The bigger question is, is there any desire to address rates because systemically the administration thinks that rates are just too high in general? And I know they think that because they keep telling me that over and over with all of the, the press that they do. And I think they're wrong if you actually look at pricing in the, in the marketplace. Um, and that's that's the one area where there's potential for direct or indirect rate regulation. Um, but I think the fact that we're targeting so much funding for infrastructure, so much funding for the ACP program should give folks pause as to whether or not there's actually any need. And there isn't, to be clear, for any forms of direct rate, rate regulation. And I bet George has lots of thoughts on all of this. Well, let, let me jump in here because that was actually an excellent segue, Patrick. Thank you for, for us now to drill down into now that we've done the setup. So um, I'd like to hit sort of both the supply and demand side. Let's let's start with the supply side, which you alluded to a little bit. All right. So the Infrastructure Act, as I said in the beginning, it's it's clearly designed primarily for new network deployment, CapEx, for ostensibly unserved areas. We'll get over the question of overbuilding in another telephone. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, the economics of the big dictate, dictate that eventually, you know, you build a new network and you can certainly see this from the municipal broadband experience. Um, you know, you build this new network, you get all this great subsidy, but eventually, because you're building in a non-economic area, CapEx runs out. So you're going to need additional, not only CapEx to keep the thing running, and you're also going to need some, some OpEx as well. Um, so that brings us back, as you said, Patrick, and the FCC made a point, you know, in the high cost fund, you know, we're paying for this. 
And I, I think the question to be asked and, and, and to be answered is, you know, so we're spending called 45 billion in subsidies. Are we still looking, you know, we're talking about the future of, of the USF fund at, at collecting billions annually um, irrespective of the source of the funds to support networks in uneconomic areas. I mean, is this just this never ending? I keep thinking that of Tom Hanks movie, The Money Pit. So, um, Angie, I'll start with you on that. Um, what do you think about that a little bit? You know, we're spending the money, but eventually, if it's uneconomic, it's uneconomic. So, I built a um, giant home in the middle of nowhere, but, you know, it's yeah. one of those things. Compass, yeah, Encompass actually had a lot to say about this point in our comments and reply comments that we filed with the FCC. So, I would encourage you to take a look at that in the future of USF proceeding. Um, but essentially, there are programs that the commission has done in the high cost fund that have been competitive programs where they said, this is what you're getting per location. And, oh, this is it. Are you willing to, you know, to, to meet these obligations? And there have been providers, including Encompass members who have participated in those programs said, yes, absolutely, we'll build. And there's no guarantee we're ever going to get any operating funding from the FCC again for these networks. But then there's a portion of the high cost program where that's not the case, where they continue to get funding and they can use that funding to operate. They can also essentially use some of that funding to, to build and to upgrade their network. And um, they continue to have opportunity. And we've said in our comments, with all of this funding coming from Congress, now is the time where we can build future-proof network infrastructure that doesn't continue to need operating you know, mechanisms, operating funding, now's the time to begin making those assessments and seeing what it is that we can get and where we don't need to continue to fund OPEX. We shouldn't continue to fund OPEX. But this actually requires the agency to do a very deep dive type of an analysis, one that I think that they've not really done before. They've relied on cost model, right? I would argue that cost model is really old, right? It's pretty dated now. And that the best way to do this is roll out this money to address the unserved. And I know there's some underserved pieces, right? Roll it out. Then let's assess what gets built and then make an assessment about what's still needed out of the high cost portion. Um, so that's the pitch that we made to the commission um, in our comments and reply comments. And, and I believe others on this panel may have had a similar view. All right, Alexander, what, what do you think about that? I, I think at CTA made many of the same points that Angie just rolled out. I mean, we're talking about future-proof networks, and the administration certainly put its thumb on the scale for fiber in the NOFO that it released last week. And by definition, these networks are supposed to require less OPEX. So I think you know the FCC should think long and hard before it entertains any requests from deed recipients for ongoing USF operating expenses. And certainly, they don't have a program that's set up right now to give only OPEX to a, a network that's been fully supported through a CapEx. Um, and there's also the question of the, the legacy recipients. Um, Patrick's gonna, I know what Patrick's gonna say. So preempt him a little bit by saying, you know, some of the FCC's existing high cost programs will operate for a number of years. I think we were happy to see that NTIA recognized that some of those areas will get 
speeds in excess of 120 in the near term and so shouldn't be eligible for bead funding. But there are legacy areas that there is no obligation on the part of the carrier to to do anything more than 25.3. That's, you know, by definition unserved. And so it remains to be seen whether those areas get picked up in bead either by the legacy recipient or a competitor. And then what does that mean for the the legacy USF support? And I think hopefully that's something that the, the commission will grapple with. Patrick? Uh, lots of thoughts. So um, historically, USF was not a CapEx fund, okay? Historically, USF was about ongoing maintenance and operations costs. So the, well, historically, the, USF was in perpetuity as well. Yeah, but my point is, is the way this worked back in the day, and I'm not saying it's the right way today, I'm just saying historically, the commission identified areas that were quote unquote high cost and effectively providers who are serving those high cost areas. Now, post 96 Act, I'm not gonna go back pre 96 Act. Um, and they would say, okay, um, in light of the fact that these are high cost areas, you're permitted to earn a certain rate of return and, and effectively we'll, you'll, we'll reimburse you for eligible costs that you incur to deploy, maintain, and operate these networks. More recently, as Angie laid out, we've gotten to a world which is more like, okay, we're gonna identify, because now it's just about broadband primarily, we're gonna identify these locations and we're gonna give you however much money you say you need to build this network. Does that include OPEX or not? In theory, you could build into your bid some level of OPEX into your into your, your bidding structure, and it would in theory cover OPEX for how long? I don't know. Um, and so there's this notion of competition for subsidy dollars, I think is theoretically and academically a good idea. The problem is this, that also gets gained. Like, look at the FCC's RDOF process. You had some companies bidding literally one-third of the cost to serve locations as other people who were saying how much money they needed to serve that location. And then after the act, they're trying to get other government funding sources to pay for their costs to meet what they promised they would do with the money that they underbid on in the prior auction. So are you really bidding just for CapEx or are you bidding for CapEx and OpEx? And what portion of your OpEx are you including in all that? I think we have very little experience with the success of these reverse auctions, to be honest, to know whether or not it's truly sufficient. So my, my big picture takeaway in all this is we have a really interesting time right now with a whole bunch of money that's going to go out in the form of some form of a competitive bidding process with the Infrastructure Act money. Whether or not there will be a need for additional ongoing OPEX after the fact, I think is an open question. I don't, I'm not saying that the commission should answer it right now. I think the commission should acknowledge that this is, a, is, is an issue and they should come up with a process that provides clarity on the front end. If, if they're going to look at providing OPEX after the fact, people should know that before they start bidding in these auctions. If they're not, people should know that. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where I, where I see it. But I don't think we can categorically say competitive bidding, no problem. This whole thing should just be a CapEx fund. We're talking about the middle of freaking nowhere where nobody has ever built broadband before. And now they're going to be competing, which means they're going to have to make promises about the least amount of money they can get to serve those areas. And we'll see if that all works out. But I bet you there's going to be a need for ongoing OPEX and maintenance in some of those locations going forward. How you determine which locations, that's a tough question. I just think it, uh -huh. it shouldn't be a foregone conclusion that you go to the FCC with your bead award and say, give me OPEX forever. And I think it should be a foregone, shouldn't be a foregone conclusion that you could bid in a competitive auction like RDOF and then ask the government for more money later to pay for your costs either. So 
You know what I mean? We just need certainty and clarity up front is what we need. How do you get certainty and clarity when you've got two different or we're really 50 Very difficult. Two different organizations who are managing $45 billion of subsidy? More than that, when you think about the fact that the BEAD program is actually running through the states and territories, right? And the notes just came out. I know everybody's still digesting them, but the folks that are really in charge are going to be at the state and local levels. And I think we're going to see a lot of different results depending upon what their priorities are. And I will make a pitch, though, in case you know, this audience is interested in, in taking a deeper dive into, into some suggestions about how states may want to look at that. And that is Paul DeSaw with Quadra Partners, who used to be at the FCC and worked with all of us when we were at the FCC, put forward a paper to help the states understand what they should be looking at, how they look at a business plan, how they should be comparing the different uh, bids that they will be getting. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because, you know, this really is a business issue, right? This is, and this is often hard for regulators and politicians to like wrap their heads around it. And they're, they're going to need a lot of guidance and a lot of help. And we need a lot of coordination as much as possible. And I know NTIA is doing a really good job of trying to coordinate with the states. They've got like one person working with, with states for like so many states, right? So they have their direct person. And then the federal agencies have entered into an agreement recently about how they're going to coordinate and share information. And when you see the NOFOs as compared to like what we saw come out of Treasury, I mean, it does look like they are trying to reconcile and make these as consistent as possible so that we don't have so many different types of rules that people would be dealing with um, based upon the program that they're in. And um, it's a hard job. I'm not, I don't mean to... Um, may suggest that it's not a hard job. It is going to be really, really hard. And I think it's going to require a lot of coordination between the states, the locals, and the federal government, um, which means, and industry, which means we all need to keep talking about this. George, you got something on this is from the economist perspective? I mean, Lord knows you've done a lot of work on subsidization of networks. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm just, again, I'm not in the network business. I work for a think tank, but this notion of a future-proof network is kind of like the perpetual motion machine to me. I've just, in all the years I've been in this business, I've just, I have never seen somebody say, I've built a network, I'm done. Right. Um, and I've well, just- Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the future is five years in telecom, something like that. Um, so future-proofing doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, one of the first things you learn from working at the commission, and I suppose my other former commission colleagues may have realized this as well, is you got to be real careful about the constituencies you create. And here we're creating a massive constituency with, with $45 billion, really $65 billion, because the ACP, they're going to come back looking for that too. So they're going to be begging for money from here to the day I'm dead. and then past that. So the commission's just got to realize that that's going to happen. Theoretically, all this is feasible. We could just tell them in the auction, you never get another penny. So you better bank in the net present value of your OPEX losses. And they'll say, okay. And then five years later, they're back begging for money. Um, that's going to be, it's the way it's going to be. I mean, you're creating a constituency, you're creating a multi-billion dollar constituency here, and this is going to become the third rail, just like universal services and universal service and lifeline and all that's not going anywhere either. 
So, so bring, well, I want to bring it back to affordability too. The other sort of dynamic here that's interesting. So, right. So you've got this, this competition for money who can deploy to serve these areas at the lowest subsidy. That's good from a government efficiency perspective, right? It also creates challenges because you will inevitably have bids that are too low in order to win. And then as George just said, then they're going to realize after the fact, uh oh, I may need some more money here to actually make this a going forward operation that can actually succeed. The other pressure is the super pressure from the administration right now about charging low rates, right? And even to get access to this money, there's a whole bunch of obligations on offering a low cost option and ensuring that it's affordable for the middle class, very vague. We'll have to see what that means in practice. Um, so you're saying bid for this location at the lowest subsidy amount, and by the way, we're going to tell you what percentage of the population on a state-by-state -state basis, as the state determines approved by NTIA, what percentage of those households you also have to have a standalone low-cost option for. And therefore, by definition, you're reducing the revenues that a company can make from end-user chargers for a, for a pretty significant portion of the subscribers in that state. That affects your 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 going forward ability to monetize your network and actually make it, you know, break even. Let alone make a profit on that network. So there's a lot of factors going in here that makes this extremely complicated. I don't envy any of the agencies who have to try to figure out how to make all of this work. But as Angie said, it's certainly challenging. We're all going to have to work together to make sure that sort of policy objectives that folks have get sufficiently addressed, but in a manner that actually makes this work. Well, that's, once again, Patrick, that's an excellent segue into my next topic. Now that we've exhausted the supply side, let's turn to the demand side real quick, right? And we've kind of alluded to that. So, again, you know, we want adoption. That's the whole, you know, build it. You know, remember the, I remember the George and I were back in the 96 Act, you know, if they build it, they will come as a falsehood. Okay, fine, but we're, we're back to that. So you want to get the demand side. Um, and certainly the USF funds and the, and the, um, Infrastructure Act, they, they, those demand side programs have their own picadillos. So and as we've talked about, you know, ACP is funded through the Infrastructure Act, which means the program is arguably finite. Uh, Lifeline is funded through USF. Uh, ACP is 30 bucks a month. USF is a little over nine bucks. ACP supports devices. USF does not. ACP is just whatever a carrier is offering. USF has got to be bought by um, an eligible telecommunications carrier. So a couple of questions, and I doubt we're going to solve this problem today, but it'll be fun to talk about it. Um, should we, here's a couple. So, I mean, should we subsidize these assorted programs in a single mechanism? I mean, do we need USF lifeline if we have ACP? Uh, what would the best form? Um, I think George had just raised this earlier, um, you know, are we going to have the political will uh, to re-up ACP? Uh, I just read uh, uh, Jonathan Spalter's blog this morning, say we should make ACP permanent. Um, were we better off? And, and this is the sort of thing that struck me. I mean, prior to the ACP and the EBB before that, a lot of companies were offering $15 a month plans, and now all of a sudden the price has gone up to 30 so let me let me start with George because George has actually written two excellent papers, one on ACP 
and the other one on Lifeline, how what how would you design it, George? In sort of and, and you're looking at it from from an I know this is we can be here for in two hours, but <laughs> you know, give, give us sort of an overview because you've actually modeled this in a, in, a, in a sophisticated way, looking at the again the Lifeline and the ACB uh, program. So give us a quick summary of that, if you wouldn't mind. I think it's fascinating work. Well, um, the uh, the Lifeline paper I did talks about a basically a separating equilibrium, which I think would be useful um, in, in all these cases. And, and basically what that says is that you offer, you have, you have to offer a plan, a subsidized plan that is largely unattractive to a customer who would pay for broadband otherwise. Um, and that way the people who opt into that plan and, and are subsidized are not taking money from the funds that are needed to support the network generally, as Patrick was talking about a minute ago. And you also don't end up subsidizing people who really don't need to be subsidized to get it um, because their value is high enough or for some other reason. Um, so, you know, that's, that's theoretically what I've uh, discussed mm -hmm. about these kind of programs. I think they probably ought to try to condense this into one program. I know that's going to be very difficult because of the permanence of one and the non-permanence of the other, not to mention the constituencies that have been created um, in the Lifeline program. So that's going to be tricky, but it obviously should be done. Whether or not it's permanent or not, I mean, nothing in government is permanent. Um, it's a vote away from being unpermanent. Um, you could make it look more permanent um, by having something more like a Lifeline or USF style legislative um, statement. Um, but what I would really like to see is, is what is the motivation for subsidizing broadband in the first place? And that has not been stated clearly. I mean, people throw things around about how great the internet is, yada, yada. And it's a necessity and all that. Well, it's not a necessity because a bunch of people don't want it. And if this was necessary, everybody would want it. Um, so it's not that. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I have my own ideas about what motivates it. But you have to say what motivates it because then you can decide how much you're going to spend, who you're going to give it to, and so on and so forth. Right now, we're just throwing money around because of this vague notion of affordability and all that. And certainly they're low income people who have a hard time paying for the Internet. But we need to define what it is, what problems specifically we're attempting to solve. I don't think these are market failures. There are no market failures. You don't build networks where it's unprofitable to build and people don't buy it when they can't afford it. That is not a market failure. That's just markets working. Um, so what's the motivation? Could be government services. I and mean, if you're going to require kids to do homework online then the government has set itself up to make the internet essential for education. But that was a choice to do that. Um, so there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be laid. It will never be laid because it becomes a constraint on your thinking when you actually have to think. Um, but um, uh, that's sort of the way I'm looking at it right now. But Pinchy, what do you think? I'm sorry, did you direct that to me? I did indeed. So I do you have any thoughts on the demand side? Partly that people don't need broadband, just having watched what happened during COVID. Um, 
you know, they didn't really have a choice. There were school children who needed to be actually not just to do their homework. They, they needed to be able to be online with their teachers and they didn't have capacity at home. So they were sitting in, you know, fast food restaurant parking lots and parents were struggling to get them, you know, the access and the devices that they needed to be able to do that. And that went on for a very long time. I, I mean, that is a pure example of why it is that we've got to have opportunities for everyone. And it is a market failure when we haven't been able to deliver what it is that people need to be online. So, so that's, that's my perspective. And I will say that the industry that I represent, it is first and foremost, their goal to make sure everyone has access who wants access and needs access and that they've got affordable service and that they can have the skills that they need to do what it is that they, they need or want to do online. That's a good thing. Um, internet is providing people more choice. You know, I also represent, Larry, you were so nice to, to set up the, uh, the panel in such a way to say that I represent the CLEX. I, I, I represent more than competitor and competitive network companies. I also represent online content companies and streaming companies. Consumers today have more options to access video content. They don't have to just use the services that Alex's members you know, have or that Patrick's members have. They have so much more choice. And that choice actually saves them money. And that's a good thing, right? Um, but it's not just entertainment video and gaming services, right? It's also making sure that the person who's at home who's suffering from cancer and needs to have a doctor's visit but can't go to the doctor because they can't actually get exposed to COVID at all, right? Can still see their doctor. Right. Like, I think it's I think we're well past the time of saying that this is something that is like a utility. It is like electricity. It is like water and people need it. Um, and I really thought COVID showed us that like no other event in our in, at least in my lifetime um, in demonstrating why it is that people need it. I mean, when I was working at the FCC over a decade ago with Patrick and Alex on broadband, we were saying at that point, we thought it was really important. This is where the jobs are gonna be, right? This is gonna help us internationally, but it's so much more than that now. And I think it's because of COVID, we've seen why it's so much more than that now. COVID's a great, great case, right? What, what did COVID do to broadband? It increased the demand for it. Right now, you had to work from home. Okay, that's that's just the market, the way the market works. Okay, but still, in November twenty twenty one, we asked forty three thousand people about broadband use, and of the people who aren't using it, sixty percent said they didn't need it or weren't interested in it. Okay, now that becomes an issue certainly if the government is going completely online. How are those people going to get served? That's an issue. It's not an externality. It's not a market failure. It's the government making a decision that puts some people in a bind. And now it may have to pay, okay, to get people online so that it can save money by having fewer offices open, so on and so forth. That's not an externality. That's just an efficiency 
that the government's going to have to pay for. But, but, George, but, but George, some percentage of folks who don't go online, it's because they say they can't afford it, right? Okay. 20%. 20%. I always have trouble with those numbers, but okay. So let's assume those numbers are right. Then we should have some level of... Um, policy reaction to that, whether it's a direct subsidy like Lifeline and ACP, that's the right answer or not, I guess we could debate, but I'm, we certainly support the ACP and the Lifeline program. So, and if there's a certain percentage that just don't want it, I guess what you're saying is then why are we spending so much money investing in digital equity and training and digital literacy and those types of things? There's a whole separate NTIA program that's several billion dollars just for digital equity. Um, and um, if, you know, look, if they don't want to pay for it, then that doesn't affect our, our spend because they won't take advantage of ACP, right? I guess I don't understand your point. So who cares? If they don't want it, then they won't end up taking the subsidy. It doesn't cost any money. It'll be, it'll be is, useful for those who do need it, though. The point is, is that is that they're establishing these goals of universality, which are not feasible, which is not going to happen. So why do you keep pretending like it's going to happen and building programs and using rhetoric to suggest that it will? It's not. We never well, so had 100 percent adoption of the telephone. OK, it's just not going to happen. The se- and then you get even deeper and deeper into this and you start thinking if somebody doesn't want to be on the Internet or is not on the Internet, what value is it to the nation if they are on the Internet? After we spend that. money trying to convince them I can think subsidizing of their service, what is the value? I can think of lots of benefits. And so, and look, another reason they may not be on the internet is because they don't have a device to connect. And I'm not here to advocate. Okay, so now we got to buy them a computer too. What is the net present value of the benefits that that individual provides the nation who's paying for all this? Okay. Does it exceed the cost of talking them into it and buying them a computer and everything else you have to do? It may be. Okay. I'm not saying it's not, but nobody's doing the math to ask that question. We're just throwing billions of dollars around. On, on what I what I think or how I feel about it. Well, let's do the damn math and see what it says. Yeah, and I've not, done the math, and it ain't pretty. It's not an issue of pure economics. And I think uh, we've we've the, the Congress then pretty much answered that question that we're going to spend the money. So to go back to Larry's original question, which is, should there be a single program? Was that what you were asking originally? Among other things, for sure. Let's <laughs> go with that. I mean, I love George. He's an economist. He thinks and talks like an economist. I appreciate him. <laughs> Um, I think what we I, I, look, there's ACP, which is not a USF program, right? You, like, as you said, Larry, it's funded by appropriations. Um, I'm concerned because it's political that that program may not end up being permanent for the, even as you acknowledge, my CEO suggested it should, it should later. That is one of the challenges with appropriations, but we think there's a perfectly reasonable role for Congress to play in appropriating funds for programs like this. And we would encourage them to keep doing it. Um, at the same time, whether Lifeline and ACP should be merged, uh, we haven't come out with a specific opinion on that other than to say the commission needs to answer the question. In other words, because Lifeline supports voice, ACP does not. All right. Well, let, let, let me let me get then because we only have about about a few minutes, but I, I do want to raise the big what I call the big enchilada, and that is universal service contribution mechanisms. Uh, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on this one and yet let all you guys fight about this. Unfortunately, we have that much time. So, um, you know, USF is funded by interstate uh, switch telephone uh, revenue. It is a dying business. 
We've been looking for ways to increase the, the issue. Um, there's a lot of ideas perking around. They all have pros and cons. So real fast, um, how do we crack that nut, if at all? Um, because I think George would probably argue, and I, I'm sure I would actually argue that, you know, the tendency is actually to spend more as opposed to going, maybe we should offer less, as that's not in the cards. We're just going to find, we, we want to spend a lot of money. What else can we do this? So is it increased debate, general revenue? What is it? So let me start with, with Angie first, and we'll move around the horn real quick. So I want to- I feel I wanna, like you keep starting with me. I was like, sure. No, I'm, 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 nice. <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. All right, fine. You know what, Angie? You wait. I'll let you wrap up. Patrick, go ahead. You go first. Hey. Oh, I want Alex to start. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And Alex should really go first. We all know. Right, Alex, you go first. I have a reactionary response, but it's, so I'll, I'll set the stage. Many people are saying that it's a crisis. They've been saying it's a crisis for as long as I've been around these issues. It's not clear that it's a crisis. Free press of all places have said that it's not a crisis. Um, I think that, that uh, there's, you know, a lot of open questions about what some of the proposals in the record would actually do to the, the economy. And I think if you look at the record, it's a lot of people who are mostly interested in growing the fund rather than stabilizing or focusing it. And so I think, you know, if we're searching for deep pockets to go after just because we want to fund this program, I think that might be best decided by Congress rather than the commission. And certainly, you know, if, if, if we're going to spread this broadly enough, then why not do it through appropriations? Well, the easiest thing there's no crisis when your industry doesn't pay the bulk of the money. But um, Angie, why don't you go? Because I think I have, a, I think I'm somewhere. If you're, if you want. Sure. So it wasn't I, me, Angie. It was it was Patrick. Yeah, no, no, it's so it's, it's fine. I just I felt bad because I felt like I talking a lot, and Alex was sitting over there in, in my left hand corner and hadn't really said anything. In a while. Take a stopwatch of this afterwards and see what the actual clock was. But go ahead, please. Yeah, sure. So we have we and Compass have been working on USF contribution reform, and we've actually been doing it for a number of years now with a very wide, diverse set of parties who are stakeholders in USF. Um, and we. Uh, commissioned Carol Maddie, who's a former FCC official and, and worked on USF for many years to put this report together. What we were looking at was, you know, what under the commission's jurisdiction could it do to address the issue? As you noted, telecom revenues are going down. It's more than just inter interstates, which by the way, the plate pays into USF, but, but still telecom revenues are going down. Um, which doesn't really reflect what's been going on in the industry or the modernization of all of the programs to support broadband availability and broadband services. So looking at the items that the commission has previously discussed, you know, we recommended that the commission should broaden the base to include the broadband internet access service revenues. And that those have increased dramatically as George noted, many more people taking broadband today than ever before because I think it's needed and it's wanted. Um, and the programs are supporting broadband services. So that was our recommendation. And, and Carol found that if the commission were to broaden the base, we would see the contribution factor go down um, dramatically. That would help the consumers who are the ones and the customers, because it's business customers too, who are paying the majority of, of this 30% rate these days. I mean, that's a really high rate. 
um, it could, it would, the expectation would be it would, it would drop to below 4%. Um, the U.S. Forward report is available online. You can find it on Encompass's website. Um, but we also, you know, would just note that the instability of the program is one that's concerning. This 30% rate is very concerning to customers. Um, and I would say some customers who buy a lot of services are very sophisticated and are now questioning why hasn't the commission done something about this? This is a ridiculous amount of, of money you know, that they're paying into the fund. I think that's a legitimate question. And we do think it's important for the commission to act. They've been studying this for over two decades of what they should do to reform the system. We are past the time for reform. Even once the commission were to do an order on what the reform is, it's going to take a while, right, to implement it. I don't think it's appropriate to ask Congress to fix a problem when the commission has the jurisdiction to fix it now. All right, Patrick, what do you got? I'm going to try to wrap this up, Larry. Um, the, the, the base of revenues, okay, that we assess for purpose of contribution since 1996 has dropped by $25 billion. And that's because nobody buys telephone service anymore like they used to, right? So there's no doubt that there's a crisis. We can't have a 30% up, upwards of 40 at one point percent fee on people's telephone bills or enterprises, uh, you know, the bills that businesses pay. That's just absurd. Um, so what we have to do is determine, are we going to need to continue to fund USF? First and foremost, that was the first 45 minutes of our conversation. I'm going to say the answer is going to be yes going forward. Is it going to be $8 billion like it is now, $9 billion, $10 billion, $20? Depends on the policymakers' choices as to what they want to spend the money on. But we're going to continue to have money to be spent on high cost, low income, rural health care, and schools and libraries programs. And the question is, what does the base look like? And surely it needs to be expanded. All I would say is the commission has authority right now under section 254D to expand the base beyond what it already uh, assesses, beyond just traditional interstate telephones. Customers' broadband rates. Uh, I, I would say include broadband, include broadband, include any service that has a telecommunications component. The commission's permissive authority allows it to do that, which would include things like self-provision networks, cloud services, et cetera. And then look, to the extent that there are services whose entire business model depend on consumer and business access to broadband, whether that's digital advertisers or, or you know, other cloud-based services or the app stores, whatever it is, let's look to make the revenue base as broad as it can be. And then make, let's have the contribution factor be 1% or less than 1%. I think that's achievable. The commission can move forward with its existing authority to significantly expand the base. And to the extent that some services just can't be covered, well, then that's what Congress needs to do and step in. So we, we hope that the commission looks at this very holistically. There's nothing that they can do, and they're not going to do anything overnight, to Angie's point. But I think we need to have a, a fulsome discussion on certainly expanding the base. And I would, I would hope it would not just be only broadband providers because that would be, I agree with Alex, just doing that would be a mistake. Well, I see that Jenny has uh, just popped up, which I, we're, we're now at the one hour mark, even though I had far more questions. This is fascinating. <laughs> so I want to thank our panelists today, Patrick Halley, Alex Menard, Angie Cronenberg, George Ford. This was an excellent substantive discussion. As I always like to jo joke, the reason why I've tried to avoid universal service in my 25 plus years in telecom is that it's far too important to be determined on the merits, but yet we managed to talk about the merits today. So it was an excellent discussion. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. This will eventually be turned into a FedSoc um, podcast. And so with that, Jenny, I think we're done. Thank you all again for an excellent, excellent discussion. I really appreciate it. And Jenny, I'll give it over to you.
Yes, thank you. I also wanted to thank our panelists for joining us today um, and also thank our audience for joining and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. As always, please keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.